You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 21st of October 2022 on Monocle 24. The UK braces itself for another new Prime Minister, or perhaps another go of an old Prime Minister. Italy grows irritable with the comparison, and good news about next year's Eurovision Song Contest. It's going to be shorter. I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. It's Friday, so it's our mostly in-house Monocle Daily, and the Monocle staff who didn't claim in time to be unavailable because they had to put in a shift as Foreign Secretary or something includes Chiara Ramella, David Hadari and Thomas Lewis. Plus, we'll hear from Michael Bancole, read the renewed race for Downing Street and discuss those Eurovision deserters with James Rowe. Stay tuned. All that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller, and we will start vastly more out of a sense of duty than desire with the ongoing circus occurring at Westminster. The race to succeed future pub quiz answer Liz Truss is taking shape, and if the bookmakers are to be believed, appears to consist of two horses, former Chancellor Rishi Sunak and both incredibly yet inevitably former Prime Minister Boris Johnson. In a possibly related development, a new YouGov poll gives Labour a 37 point lead over the Tories were a general election to be held tomorrow. The Conservatives would not even be the opposition afterwards. Well, I'm joined now by Michael Bancoli, a direct doctoral researcher in politics at King's College London and co-host of the podcast Politics Jam. Uh, Michael, is, is it now that simple? Is it going to be Sunak or Johnson? Penny Mordaunt obviously became the first officially declared candidate today. Is she still a chance? Well, yeah, I think it's going to be one of those three that's going to win this race. Look, Sunak is the favourite, and he is the favourite because he was runner up to Liz Trust last time, and he's someone that seemed as a unifying um, kind of a member of the Conservative Party. Johnson, to me, seems unlikely given how deeply unpopular he is amongst the electorate, and the Conservative base are aware of that, and the Conservative MPs are aware of that, apart from kind of a strong section like, you know. Dean Doris to the squad and Anya Jacob Rees Mogg. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens, but I definitely think one of those three will win the race and become the next Prime Minister. If Johnson is that unpopular with the electorate, and he's certainly unpopular enough among at least a sector of the Conservative Parliamentary Party that they unloaded him the first time, why do the people who want him back want him back? Well, they would argue that in 2019, Boris Johnson delivered uh, an 80 seat majority and he has he essentially has the governing mandates from the British people. But what the argument against that is, and it's quite a clear argument, is that Johnson eroded the goodwill of the British people during his time as prime minister. And he was kicked out of office because of his sheer incompetence. So if anything, decision was made by Conservative MPs at the time when Johnson was ousted from office, that he was a net negative for the Conservative Party and he would cost him electorally. So I don't see how Johnson over the last few months has somehow transformed from being in a negative place for the Conservative Party to somehow being the man that's going to transform their, their, their electoral fortunes and where they are in terms of polling numbers. It's like a dog going back to his own vomit at this point. If it were to go back to, to Boris Johnson, it would be a profoundly weird decision. Well, thank you for that rich dinnertime simile, and I'm sure our listeners thank you as well. But th- there's also the consideration that is there not that he is still potentially compromised by this 
Privilege, Privileges Committee investigation about misleading the House. I mean, it's not impossible, is it, that we could be in for the glorious prospect of Boris Johnson being restored only to have to resign again? Well, yeah, again, there's so much baggage with Boris Johnson. And I think what the British people need and what the Conservative Party need isn't a leader that's going to, to divide the party. Because let's face it, there are some MPs who love Boris Johnson deeply in, in, in the Conservative Party, in Nadine Dorsey, Jacob Rees-Mogg, as I've mentioned. But there are some who, frankly, can't stomach his presence any longer. And his presence as leader of the party would be detrimental because it would mean that you know the party's divided, they haven't got the kind of mandate to, 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 to govern because it's such a divided party. So I think Johnson makes literally zero sense because of the baggage he, he brings, because of the fact he would divide the party. And, and I mean, the, the most important thing is he's, he's, he's shown and we have quite a concrete set of evidence that he's not a, a great leader or prime minister. Uh, well, there is a quote just in from a predecessor uh, as leader of the Conservative Party, William Hague, who has said that bringing back Boris Johnson would be, and I quote, the worst idea he's heard in 46 years as a member of the Conservative Party. And in 46 years as a member of the Conservative Party, that's going to be a pretty high bar. Um, but is it possible that the Tories are just looking at those polls I mentioned and thinking at this point, literally anything's worth a try? Well, yeah, but I think you've tried Johnson already. So you've tried Johnson. <laughs> part of the reason they're in this position in terms of polling numbers. We have to remember that Johnson left office as prime to Liz Truss, of course, whose numbers were just astronomically bad. He left office as the least popular post-war prime minister. His numbers, approved rating, his net approved rating numbers, I think, were, were minus 56, which is obviously a huge, hugely poor performance when it comes to approval. So Johnson isn't this kind of miracle worker who's going to come back in, strut into office, and kind of boost the conservative position in terms of polling numbers. Nor is he the man that's going to put together a vision that's going to unite the country and also unite the Conservative Party. He's shown that he's a divisive figure in the Conservative Party, and he's shown that he can't lead the nation. And we have to remember the crisis we face as a nation. We're facing falling living standards, crumbling public services. The last thing we need is more political turmoil, and I think ultimately that's what Boris Johnson would bring with him. The current plan is that at the very latest, by this time next week, we will know who the new Prime Minister of the United Kingdom is. Uh, whether it's Boris Johnson, Rishi Sunak, Penny Mordaunt or some other candidate who sneaks their way through, is there actually anything they can plausibly do to turn the party's current fortunes around and ideally the government's fortunes around? Because in theory, they can stay in charge for another couple of years. Well, yeah, they can. And look, there's no political incentive for the Conservative Party to call a general election, given how poorly we are polling and also where the economy is. So I think the Conservatives and their mentality will be, once they get a new leader, is we're going to hang in there and try and improve our polling numbers and also try and improve the economic situation. And I think the priority for any Conservative leader is really about tackling the cost of living crisis, which is afflicting families up and down the country. You know, this is a time of political uncertainty. This is a time of, of, of turbulence in so many people's lives and people are having to choose between heating and eating. And I think it's really important that whoever the prime minister is, sets out an economic agenda that, you know, helps you know poor, the poorest in this country, helps the most vulnerable in this country and helps, you know, improve the lives of all because we are seeing, you know, falling living standards and and, and, and so people's pockets being being hit quite hard by the economic crisis. So looking after this, the, the economy will be the big, big, big um, kind of plan for the next leader of the Conservative Party. Michael Bancoli, thank you very much for joining us. You're listening to The Daily on Monocle 24. 
You're listening to The Daily on Monocle 24. Now, by this time next week, as we were just discussing, at least if the Conservative Party sobers up sufficiently to think better of the Boris Johnson restoration, the UK will be on its fifth Prime Minister in a little over six years. King Charles III will be on his second in six weeks. Grasping for comparison, British analysts and satirists alike have been invoking Italy, which for quite long stretches of the post-World War II period has seemed intense on giving every interested citizen a crack at running the place. Well, here to consider whether this is entirely fair is Monocle's executive editor and who knows, perhaps future Prime Minister of Italy. And they could do worse. Uh, Chiara Ramella. Um, Chiara, do you weary somewhat of this comparison? Am I right in assuming? I am, yes. I'll tell you what. I found the cover of The Economist mm. that's just been released, perhaps the lowest of the blows. Um, I'm fairly used to um, Italy being used as a kind of the butt of this joke. And I, I've I, been. I, I, I may have made one or two yeah, of those I've gags been, I've, myself. Yeah, I've been on this program <laughs> having exactly this very conversation with you quite a few times. So it's not like I'm completely immune, nor I would like to stress, am I a huge fan of our current government mm. or soon to be government i should say she's just uh, meloni has just accepted the um the role and she's mm. going to be forming the, the, the Prime Minister. Nor am I a great fan of Italian political instability. But I do think that, particularly coming from Britain, this comparison right now is quite exemplary of the very attitude that has led Britain into the mess that it's in right now. <laughs> because one of the things that I found myself thinking about the most in the absolute... Oh, God, flabbergasting chaos of the last few days. Flabbergasting is a good word. It's quite nice, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. Um, Was that I thought trust was so unbearably just unlikely as a character. But you have to really go back to all the people that have come before her. And if you trace it back to just as unlikely Boris Johnson and back and back and back, everything really began from Cameron's referendum mm-hmm. and before that from Nigel Farage. You know, all of this is a direct consequence of that domino effect. And what does that referendum tell us? What does that, you know, old attitude tell us? That Britain thinks it's better than its European cousins mm-hmm. and that the European cousins are these chaotic people who just use resources and don't help. Um, and for for that attitude to have caused all this chaos and for then Britain right now to, to be taking a bit of a, almost like a higher stance, being like, oh God, are we almost like them? I think is quite ironic because really it just kind of is something that's blew, blown back in, in Britain's own face. Uh, you mentioned the Economist's cover and you do have to feel somewhat for whoever is answering their mail over the coming weeks. It, it has gone over extremely badly in Italy and it's, uh, we should try to describe it a bit. It depicts Liz Truss as the image of Britannia, but instead of the traditional scepter or whatever it is that Britannia traditionally clutches, a spear of some sort, she is holding a fork which is twirling spaghetti. Yeah, she also has a pizza shield. <laughs> but the pizza Sorry, shield miss, is what... I missed that detail. Yeah, she has a pizza <laughs> shield out of which a slice has been carved out. The pizza shield is perhaps what is going to anger the Italian the most. Because well, they haven't a, put it's, pineapple on it, have they? It's an absolutely disgusting pizza. Yeah, that does it's, look like an absolutely disgusting pizza. It's um, 
It's supposed to represent a Union Jack, I guess. But in doing so, it has what I suppose is a big cross of tomato sauce. And then some suspicious blue content. What are they putting on there? Blueberries? What is that? <laughs> the tomato and blueberry pizza. Oh. Uh, I don't know. I've been, I've been served weirder things. Anyway, I... Yeah, I, it's gone down really, really badly to the point that um, the ambassador, the Italian ambassador to the UK has actually written a letter Amazing. to the Guardian complaining about um, the fact that it's used the oldest possible of stereotypes and, you know, remarking that actually whilst the Economist story talks about low growth, Italy is like a huge manufacturing power for aerospace, biotech, etc., etc., um, and then just remarking that um, the, you, the, the that that Britain or the Economist has a not so secret admiration for our economic model. Well, so indeed. look at that. But but in fairness, and I do realise, speaking as an Australian, I myself have very 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 slender grounds for you know looking down on anybody else. Re revolving door on the Prime Minister's office here, but. I mean, it isn't like Italy has not provided the rest of us with the material. Yes, I get it. <laughs> and I did also consult a Wikipedia list of uh, the, te- the longest or shortest tenure in, in Italian uh, prime ministerships. The shortest was a caretaking prime minister mm-hmm. for only 16 days. So I don't know if that counts. Australia wins. Francis Ford, I think I'm right in saying without looking it up, was prime minister for eight days. Very nice. Then Yay, maybe maybe the win. next cover is on you. Um, <laughs> but I, I guess like what's most impressive about the list of Italians is not so much the shortest ones, but just how many of them are about like a year something. Mm. We just have this endless list of just over, just making it just over the year mark, um, which is quite remarkable. Of course, Berlusconi still very much in the news, um, on front pages even, and it's been tallied up here at over nine years between everything. Uh, But you could also argue that there is a perhaps more pertinent uh, Italian influence on modern politics because it is Silvio Berlusconi, I think, to whom the likes of Boris Johnson and Donald Trump owe the recognition that in politics, total shamelessness is kind of a superpower. If you just don't care, nobody can touch you. Well, we've seen what Berlusconi has done this week. I Mm. mean, he's gone beyond what anybody would think is something that is possible to say at this point in time. You know, he said that he's um, restarted his relationship with Putin, that Putin has sent him 20 bottles of vodka and sent him a really sweet letter and that he's responded with even sweeter words. And this you might think is something that's absolutely ridiculous, but he's actually currently part of like a coalition that's making government seriously. You know, this is happening right now. But to your point, it goes back to to to, to the idea that he's just built almost like this incredible shield around himself, mm. where everybody just expects him to do the most insane thing. And when it happens, you're just not that shocked anymore. You're just like, oh God, Berlusconi's done another one of his. Nice work. If you can get it. Chiara Ramella, thank you for joining us. You're listening to The Daily and we go now to Toronto where the Canadian artist Kent Monkman, a member of the Cree Indigenous Nation, has opened a new landmark exhibition of paintings at one of Canada's largest natural history museums. This is the Royal Ontario Museum, known locally as the ROM. Nearly five years ago, the museum asked Monkman to choose a selection of objects from its permanent collection, which ranges from dinosaur fossils, historic Indigenous artefacts and even meteorite fragments 
Netherlands and to paint new works as a response to each item, works focusing on the indigenous narratives that colonial-era museums like the ROM have often overlooked. Monocle's correspondent in Toronto, Thomas Lewis, went to meet him. Being legendary is a challenge to a colonial museum. And the museums on this continent, of course, were built by settlers and their points of view on Indigenous people. So a lot of my work has to do with challenging the narratives as told by settler cultures about us. The First People's Gallery down in this very museum is a narrative told by two white guys. And so Indigenous people, when we come into these spaces, we scratch our heads. Sometimes we're, we're angered or confused by you know, someone else's version of who we are. So this is an opportunity to challenge an institution and to offer a different perspective on objects that are in the collection to ask the audience to think, oh, what do Indigenous people think about dinosaurs? What, what, what are these moccasins? How did these moccasins get into this museum? Who do they belong to? And um, so I'm asking sometimes difficult questions of, of a museum. And um, this is a result of uh, one specific project that wanted to really ask the museum to consider, or the audience to consider, what do Indigenous people think about dinosaurs? What do we know? What does our knowledge tell us about these fossils that have been extracted from our land, that have been embedded in our land for millions of years? And is that knowledge still intact? And if there is an interruption of that knowledge, how did that knowledge get interrupted? And so this project specifically has a period that touches on the colonial period as a period of interruption of knowledge. I didn't want the colonial period and the trauma resulting from that period to overtake or become the main event in this exhibition. So in fact, just knowing the kind of truths that were emerging in the news media and, you know, Canadians were learning about some horrific things that happened. I also didn't want that to become the main part of this exhibition. I want people to, to realize that um, we're not defined by colonialism. We're not defined by the colonial period. We've been here much longer. Um, the colonial period is really just a blip in, in, in this long timeline of our existence here. And so, you know, as these devastating things, news items appear, I decided to kind of shrink that period, uh, that chapter in this exhibition, and really focus on Indigenous, the richness of Indigenous existence before and after moving forward and really focus on the, the incredible people that have inspired me to create these portraits that are, you know, that hold knowledge, that are activists, that artists, and through their creativity and their work, you know, we're, we're so much more than, than the, um, the settler version of us that exists in these museums. And I think the impact of the colonial chapter in this exhibition feels even more devastating when you realize uh, the joy, the laughter, the, the relationships of family, and that passing down of knowledge from different generations, it has more impact when you understand, you get a glimpse into our way of, of knowing and our way of being and our way of life. And so this, this was really uh, an opportunity to really expand that, that possibility of, of narrative across like 35 paintings and to be able to kind of go into it in, in a very rich way. Just very finally, over 35 paintings it's an enormous endeavor over many years how does it feel to to see the works in this context that in a way inspired 
this entire exhibition and lots of the paintings. Well, it's amazing to see them all together. And, you know, as, as the curator, I was also able to um, choose the way, you know, the order, the sequence of the artworks and um, to choose the colors of the walls. And so that all of these choices are really designed to have maximum impact in terms of the takeaway, you know, the audience experience. And um, that's something that I, I love doing because, uh, you know, if, if you're just make, creating a work of art and someone else puts it in, in a context that you have no control over, it might not have its maximum impact. But this was an opportunity to work with a museum who was very interested in having me do the entire thing. So I think it's one of the best installations of my work I've ever seen. They're, they have an incredible team here, the designers, the typography Everything has been is just meticulously done, so it's really amazing to see it all come together. That was the Canadian artist Kent Monkman speaking to Monocle's Thomas Lewis at the opening of his new exhibition, Being Legendary, at Toronto's Royal Ontario Museum. It's on display from now until late March. <laughs> You're listening to The Daily on Monocle 24. Now, subscribers to Monocle magazine, and if you are not one, there is never a bad time, will be well aware that we are, as a publication, fond of trains. Further evidence of this is available in the latest edition of Monocle magazine, which will be on a newsstand near you shortly. Or, if you've already subscribed, arriving on your actual doorstep. Do you see how convenient this is? It includes a report from the InnoTrans Railway Trade Fair by our business editor, David Hodari, who joins me now. Um, David, this whole thing, and we did talk about it on the radio while you were there and shortly after you returned, was about the idea that a golden age of rail travel is about to descend. Post-pandemic people are travelling again, and also people are realising that probably spending a lot of time on aeroplanes is not doing us or, you know, the earth all that much good. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And if you believe the European Commissioner for Transport, Adina Valian, who um, said uh, that she wants to usher in a golden, a second golden age for trains, um, there's quite a lot of inf- there's quite a lot of evidence behind that. So by 2030, we're on target to uh, increase all of the merchandise moved by rail by 50 percent and double it by 2050. And she's of the view, and I don't disagree with her, that. Rail is, again, the most attractive way to move people and and goods around Europe, especially when you consider the delays we've been seeing in airports this summer. Well, indeed, a a few of which I have personally experienced. I I require no uh, convincing on that front. But what did you learn specifically from going to InnoTrans? So there's this huge wave of optimism and funding, to back it up, breaking over the rail industry. Part of that's due to the fact that rail is environmentally and uh, from a fuel point of view, more efficient than air travel or by individual trucking or even driving. So, for example, if you listen to the uh, OECD's energy watchdog, uh, transportation as a whole accounts for about a quarter of global emissions and rail is uh, rail punches above its weight in mm. terms of how much you can transport for how much emissions it puts out. And those low emissions were in focus at Inatrans. So uh, hydrogen and batteries were very popular. They're big, they're heavy. You can strap them or or drill them to the top of a train carriage, whereas 
that's kind of hamstrung those two technologies in in uh, the aviation industry and to a degree in the automotive industry as well. Trains don't really have that problem. And also there are other sort of light rail options that are in ascendance too. So I spoke to the head of the World Monorail Association and mm-hmm. they're seeing a huge uptick in projects as well. I mean, what are people talking about in terms of making it a more attractive offering to passengers? Is, for example, anyone working on an ejector seat which works automatically for people who play audio out loud on their phones? Uh, sadly not, although if there were one for uh, people who bring Burger Kings onto a train, I would, Them uh, as well. I would heartily support that. Um, in terms of making it a more pleasurable experience, uh, I sat in some lovely train carriages. That, <laughs> that, that sort of reminded me of the trains that I usually get on in the UK, although they were much cleaner and there, were, there was an absence of people, which can often be a problem from my point of view. Um, <laughs> But in terms of uh, making it a pleasurable experience and making it an efficient one, there's a lot of technology being deployed now to make sure that trains are being used efficiently. There are more trains at peak hours, fewer trains at off-peak hours. And that way, it's cheaper for everyone. It's cheaper for the operators. It's cheaper for the customer. And also, you're not crammed into a carriage or sitting on a floor for three hours. Is there across Europe especially, do you think, still a kind of gulf in standards and or are there European countries that the rest of Europe acknowledges as as the real benchmarks here, the, the standard everybody should be aiming at? I mean, basically... I'm thinking I cannot be the only person who has ever sit on a sat on a train operated by Swiss Railways and just thought, why are these people just not put in charge of literally everything? Well, as you were asking that question, it, I, it did bring my mind back to a very pleasant day I spent on uh, Switzerland, S- Switzerland's trains in May. I took the train from Zurich to Geneva and then back again on the day, and it couldn't have been cleaner or more pleasurable. But then again, you look at other countries in Europe, say Italy, um, I took a train from Florence to Milan earlier this summer. Uh, you know, we don't need to get into the into the uh, territory of making the trains run on time, but it did run on time, and it was very clean and it was immaculate. Um, and then you look maybe in the UK, which where it's a bit more of a mixed bag. So I took a train to Leeds and back last weekend, which was clean and efficient, and there was refuse collection and everything ran on time, but. Going back to my uh, my ancestral home of Manchester uh, is a bit less of a bit less of a pleasurable experience. I've been travelling up and down that route for ten years, and it's never been as filthy or unreliable as it is right now. And just finally, is there any or was there any discussion about what the best operating slash funding model for railways is? re-private versus public. I mean, as you'll be aware in this country, it's a it's, it's almost a tribal battle cry on the left of politics that the railways should all be re-nationalised. But uh, when I've spoken to people who have any recollection of what British Rail was like when it was nationalised, they're always quite happy to tell me that it was, it was scarcely heaven on wheels. I think it's really, again, a mixed bag. You know, um, if you take a look at different routes in the UK, for example... There are some instances where where uh, part nationally owned operators are doing very well. There are some instances where private operators are doing very poorly. But then you look at different countries in the developed world where it's the inverse. So I think uh, I I can sort of rely on both private and public operators to screw things up and to occasionally get things right too. Monocle's business editor David Hadari, thank you for joining us. You can read David's full account of InnoTrans 2022 Berlin in this month's Monocle magazine and that will be so much easier for you to do if you subscribe, which you can do at our website at monocle.com. This is the Monocle Daily. 
And finally on today's show, next year's Eurovision Song Contest was already going to be unusual. Relocated from the home country of last year's winner, Ukraine, to the home country of last year's runner-up, the United Kingdom, for depressingly obvious reasons. Also, for the same depressingly obvious reasons, Russia had been disinvited. It now seems that Eurovision 2023 will be unusual in another respect, i.e. shorter. Three countries, Bulgaria, Montenegro and North Macedonia, Macedonia have now withdrawn, citing budgetary concerns. Well, with me now is Eurovision boffin and host of the Eurotrip podcast, James Rowe. Um, James, why has Eurovision suddenly become more expensive? This is related to Russia not being in it, isn't it? Primarily, yeah. So each broadcaster who takes part in the Eurovision Song Contest has to pay a participation fee. And this differs from country to country, depending on the size of the broadcaster and how much they can really contribute. But of course, you'll remember Russia was disqualified earlier this year because of the war in Ukraine. So naturally, that pushes up the participation fee for, for every other country. And alongside that as well, the, the, the cost of living crisis and the, the increase in energy bills affects not just human beings, but also broadcasters and businesses as well. So for a lot of small broadcasters across Europe, it's becoming a, a, a much higher cost than it can really afford. Do we get the sense that this is a definite and final decision by these three countries, or are they hoping that Eurovision might come back to them with a better offer? Yeah, this is going to be the, the official 37 countries we're going to have for next year. The the deadline to submit an entry or, or submit their part- participation, shall we say, has been and gone. So we're definitely going to have 37. But it doesn't mean they can't come back in the future. Eurovision every year fluctuates in its number of participants. Uh, a few years ago, it was up to 42. And then obviously next year, it's down to 37. So it's no, it's no secret that the number of participants fluctuates. But for sure next year, we will not have Bulgaria, Montenegro and North Macedonia. Uh, is it being too cynical to suggest that the three of them might also have taken a fairly long, hard look at their prospects of actually winning it? <laughs> uh, potentially not that cynical, actually. Um, let's take Montenegro, for example. They've only made it to the final two times out of the last 12 years. Uh, so they haven't got a particularly good result, a good string of results, shall we say. And in the past, they withdrew back in 2020 and said that they instead wanted to spend uh, around €130,000 participation fee on a new fleet of cars for the broadcaster. So uh, there there are various reasons for why they they may want to spend more money. But yeah, potentially the, the string of results recently may well be one of them. Because there is still a consideration here, isn't there? Even if you go to Eurovision thinking we don't really have much of a hope of winning this thing, it is still potentially astonishing exposure for your country because you get to do the little bit where there's the montage of your act sort of gambling about in the the local wilderness you you get one of your local tv personalities in front of a european audience in order to read out the votes and for countries like these three montenegro north macedonia bulgaria which are probably not necessarily uh, the first three countries anybody thinks of when they're planning their holiday though all three i can personally confirm are delightful it's potentially a pretty big deal isn't it yeah exactly you know you think of countries across europe the uk france germany the big ones people always know who they are and 
obviously want to win all the time but for these smaller countries this is probably one of the biggest exposures of the year they're ever going to get 200 million people are going to see uh, some of your culture they're going to see one of your musicians on a global stage so yeah it's not necessarily always about the the participation and the the will to win for some countries like these smaller ones that we've mentioned sometimes it's just the the exposure to 200 million people that is one of the driving forces to keep on participating well on the subject of winning this thing which you know i think quite a lot of people do turn up hoping to do is it also possibly the case that just as was the case this year everybody kind of assumes that ukraine already has this in the bag i do wonder about that actually of course um ukraine this year got almost a, a record televote score from 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 the audience at home um some of it naturally would have been uh, um i don't want to say sympathy vote but more of a lending support and showing solidarity with ukraine uh, but it's also safe to say that ukraine had a, a really good song and was already one of the favorites before before the the russian invasion so i'm not entirely sure that countries will be looking thinking oh well it's all all going to be for ukraine next year because i think people's attitudes people's opinions will have changed by then so i think it's probably going to be more of an open competition than people might think for 2023 i am just looking at the odds now ukraine already a even money favorite a, <laughs> a, a long way uh, ahead of the next favorites which are the uk and sweden nudging 10 to 1 um but as we were saying at the top, this is being hosted uh, in the UK next year. Liverpool has been chosen as the host city. Now, obviously, they're going to have to negotiate a balance between where the contest is and where the contest should be. Do, do we know yet what's being planned in terms of acknowledging that this is uh, fundamentally still Ukraine's event? No, we don't know a lot at the moment, actually. It's safe to say that the contest next year is going to be unique in, in a lot of ways. The BBC have so far said that they will be reflecting Ukraine's win and reflecting Ukrainians' culture. So it'll be interesting to see whether we're going to get some Ukrainian presenters, for example. And we saw uh, a guy called Timur Miroshnichenko um, at the National Television Awards a couple of weeks ago. He's effectively Ukraine's Graham Norton. <laughs> so a lot of people are, are thinking he's a bit of a shoe in to present the show alongside a couple of BBC presenters. And then also the, the postcards, these 30 second clips we see between the, uh, the songs themselves as well. We may see some Ukrainian culture in there too. So it's going to be an interesting balance for the BBC to be able to uh, show off their own culture, the, the UK's culture, but also reflect uh, Ukraine as well. Of course, they were the winners in 2022 and should be hosting the event next year. So, yeah, an interesting balance is um, is going to be seen next year. James Rowe, thank you very much for joining us. And that is all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. Thanks to our other contributors today, Michael Bancoli, Chiara Ramella, David Hadari and Thomas Lewis. Today's show was produced by Tom Webb. Our sound engineer was Tamsin Howard. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily is back at the same time on Monday. Thanks for listening and have a great weekend. 